Welcome to the Life After Sugar podcast. The podcast that's not just about sugar, but about your relationship with it and also with food and especially with yourself. So if you want to discover your life after sugar and hear inspiring stories from all kinds of people who also cut out sugar in their way, at their pace, for their own reasons, this is the podcast for you. Because you know, when you take away the sugar, you can finally discover the real sweetness in your life. I'm your host, Netta Gorman, and today I'm talking with Alicia, who tells about her relationship not just with sugar, but with all processed foods. And even though she was leading a healthy, sporty lifestyle, it's that relationship that she had with those types of foods that was her downfall. So here's my chat with Alicia. Now I'm talking today with Alicia and lovely to see you all the way on the other side of the planet in Australia. (laughs) Some crazy time in the morning for you. So thank you for getting up so early to talk to me. Um, Oh, no worries, never. Oh, smashing. And I'd like to um, know about what your life was like when you were still consuming sugar and, and sort of how that changed. Yeah, well, I think, you know, for me, food was always, um, it always had a real charge for me, even from a very young age, from when I was a child, I was always very much seduced by food and it, there was a real electricity to it. Um Yeah, like I remember, you know, as a kid, like knowing I was going to be going out for dinner on a Saturday night to the Chinese restaurant, which, you know, in the 80s was the thing to do. And um, I would often spend my whole day fantasising about what I was going to eat that night um, to the point where I was not really living in my day. And then I'd get to the restaurant and I would just devour everything in sight so fast that I didn't even taste it you know and I would often eat to the point of being really feeling quite sick so even though I didn't necessarily do that all the time there was always that unhealthy aspect to my relationship with food and did you Um, fantasize about all kinds of foods or was it specific types of foods well that's an interesting thing I think at that point in time, it was all food. But if I look more closely in retrospect, it, it was sugar. I th- and I think, you know, that's become more clear to me now that I'm on a different path. That for a very long time, I thought my problem was food, but my problem was, in fact, sugar, which was then leading me to overconsume lots of different types of food. Yeah. Um, and I think that you know, fantasy and that obsession, it sounds strange, but it was almost painful being so excited about food. It it was like bordering on painful. Um, And I think, yeah, so then in my, you know, coming up to about 12 or 13, I always swam as a kid and um, I was okay at it, getting pretty good. And I decided that's what I wanted to channel a lot of energy into and I began training more and more as a competitive swimmer and um, as you probably know swimmers are renowned for just being able to eat, eat vast quantities of food and, and that was certainly me I could just put away so much food like my fuel demands were so high 
but I think that that um, the fact that I needed so much fuel really kind of masked the fact that there was something unhealthy going on with my relationship with food and that I would I would binge at times and I would often eat overeat but it kind of didn't really matter because I was just needing so to put so much in my body to keep up with my energy demands um, but I think for me when I was 18 or 17 I, I in my final year of school I decided to have a bit of time off swimming and put all my energies into my studies and that was where I kind of ran into trouble in that I realized and I think I always had an inkling that I really didn't know how to moderate my food intake at all I had no idea when I was hungry um, when to stop eating and I still and I was really found it very difficult to work that out and what I found was that I always had that propensity to want to binge like I wanted to eat I wanted to at certain times I'd fantasize about it and just want to eat a huge amount all at once. Like I got um, a real high out of that. And it was like a drug. Like a drug. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I was just going to say, hmm, sounds familiar to <laughs> that kind of behavior. And so, do you make the distinction between sort of eating a lot, overeating and binging? Yes, I think. Um, I think overeating is normal to, I, I think that that's something that from my experience, observing other people, everybody, I think overeats, they might get, they might leave a meal and think, gee, I really ate too much then, you know, they might get a little bit carried away in the social situation for whatever reason. But I think for me, binging is so compulsive. It feels completely out of control. And even though I've got to the point where I feel like my stomach is going to explode, I can't stop. So I think there's this rabid energy to binging. Yeah. And it's, it's like something's happening in your brain. It's, your stomach is sort of disconnected from your brain, right? Totally. I think when you say that, I feel it's like you're possessed. You're not really yourself anymore. It's like you... you your brain's being hijacked and that's what addiction does right right whatever the substance and you know it's not necessarily recognized by everyone that food can be just as addictive as an illicit substance but you know it there's the sort of the tricky thing with food addiction is that food is a necessary for life easily available super cheap you know, and like yeah. scaringly cheap. And so, you know, it's easy to fall into that sort of pattern of behavior. If, if Do you think it, that some people are more uh, inclined to, to have that type of binging behavior than others? I do, I think so. Um, I think there's probably multiple factors that go into it. I think there's genetics, like I have um, a history of alcoholism in both um, on both sides of my family I think it's in environment you know I think it, it, it's nurture I, th I think there's a lot of stuff that goes into it but for me I think that that element has always been there mm -hmm. yeah yeah and when you were still swimming you know did you 
like I believe in the paradigm of burning off those calories by doing all the exercise. Yeah, well, that's a funny one. I think for me, it just, uh, it wasn't really a concern because I, I mean, I wasn't spending hours a week to train to look a certain way. I was spending hours a week to train because I wanted to be an Olympian, <laughs> even though I never actually got uh, got to that point. Um, and this is, uh, this is something that might sound a little bit strange because I know um, I've heard a lot of women say that when they were younger, they felt shamed for eating too much. Whereas I actually, I was praised a lot for how much I ate. I, I, um, my dad, God, he was proud as punch. He used, he used to tell me and anyone else that wanted to hear like, oh, you've got a fantastic appetite. And, and I, like in a weird way, really enjoyed that attention. And I was a very, um, I think I'm naturally lean and like to be, I mean, look, when you, when you binge eat and as I got on in my early twenties, no, no, um, lean genetics will immunize you from putting on weight that's for sure but as a as a teenager I was very very lean and my swimming coach actually said look I want you to to bulk up I want you to because I'm racing you know women that are that are really big and strong and 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 he said I want you to take this um, protein supplement to bulk up a bit so so and I was like sure great you know <laughs> like it was like a chocolate protein shake and so I, I never really felt like I had to worry about my weight in that sense. And in a weird way, um, yeah, I felt there, there was a bit, an identity, I think, to be, be able to be this person that, that could eat a lot. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah, that sounds familiar. And you relate to that. I relate to that because, I, I mean, I, I've always been small and I've always had a good appetite. And because I was at ballet school, my mum was always worried that I might have or develop some sort of um, eating disorder because, you know, you've got to be super skinny to be a ballerina. And all. That. I mean, I ended up being a pretty crappy ballerina. So, <laughs> so I went to university <laughs> instead. But but I mean, I remember her being super pleased when I would polish off a good mm. plate of food. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, and and, and yeah, genetics has it such that I stayed slim all my life. Although I must say I sort of found my 20-year-old body again at the age of 45 when I stopped eating sugar. Mm. So yeah, as you say, there is a limit to just how far genetics will take you. Yeah. And yes. so when did you realize that, well, wait a minute, it may, this may not be all food, I, that it was more to do with sugar? Oh, yes. Well, um, I think all through my 20s, up in, in, you know, like into, I mean, I was 34 when I found recovery. It was just a bit of a roller coaster, really. And, there, and I couldn't work out um, why I did what I did. And there was no, often no rhyme or reason to it. I'd go months or, or weeks of eating really well, no problems. And then all of a sudden I'd get out of control again and be on the binging roller coaster. Um, and I, I really knew there was something very wrong. And I sought the help of a lot of health professionals, um, therapists, counsellors, psychologists. And I was always told by really well-meaning people to be kinder to myself and um, 
to just seek moderation. And for me, you know, moderation was the very thing that was keeping me stuck. And uh, so I, I was just going around and around in circles, really. Um, and then when I was 34, so I just, I'd had my three kids and in, in the year or so after my third child, I began to experience pelvic pain and bladder pain. And to the point where my bladder became so irritated that I would at, at, at some days be going 30 times a day to the toilet. Like it was really very distressing and it was debilitating. Like, and, and that, I think that physical pain really brought me to my knees. And I, I was seeing a women's health specialist at the time who was trying to eliminate any things that could be irritating my bladder and pelvis. And she said, look, you know, do you, do you eat much sugar? Like sugar, sugar can be a real bladder irritant. And, um, you know, and if you do, you might want to cut back on that. And so I did because I was just beside myself with the symptoms I was experiencing. And I was so desperate that I remember really bargaining and praying and, 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 and saying, look, you know, God, if you take this, pain away from me and I get better I will never eat sugar again because at that point in time I wasn't able to do having always been a very active person I wasn't surfing I wasn't um, doing any of the stuff I enjoyed because that, that that made my symptoms worse and anyway over a period of months I my symptoms um, began to dissipate and I got to a point where, you know, I started to feel better again and the pain was no longer um, ruling my life. And I thought, well, you know, I could probably have a bit of dessert again <laughs> on a Saturday night, you know. Yeah. That thought crept in, you know, I'd forgotten about, you know, getting down on the floor on my, on my knees praying. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought, yeah, just, uh, just Saturday night only you know, just a small bowl of, of my dessert of choice. And, uh, and funnily enough, over the, the weeks that followed, that, that small bowl morphed into a mountain, an overflowing mountain, and which then, yeah, which then seeped, um, it bled into the days after Saturday night. And, you know, those wheels started spinning and it was like I'd kind of, gotten onto this train that um, started to go really, really fast and spin out of control. And a couple of months later, by the time it was, it was Christmas, I went away with my family and, and the, that's where the wheels fell off. You know, I was doing all, all those sort of hallmarks of addiction, hiding, eating in secret, lying, not present with my family, sneaking into the kitchen, filling my pockets and stuffing stuff under my shirt to go into the bedroom or the bathroom to eat. And e even again, getting to the point of feeling sick, still eating, still obsessing with food. And so I was back in that place and I'd been talking at that point to a counsellor for a couple of years. And when I mentioned to her what had happened, the penny dropped for her. 
And she said to me, Alicia, she said, I've got it. She said, you are struggling with addiction. You're addicted to sugar. And I was sort of like, well, yeah, I mean, of course I am. Like, but is, I mean, everyone eats sugar. I couldn't fathom that people wouldn't eat sugar. And she said, no, like you can't eat it. And I was kind of gobsmacked by that, and just that, that thought. And, and I, you know, my stomach sank. But at the same time, there was a degree of relief, just a small degree, because I, I knew there was truth in what she said. And she said to me, look, you can't do this alone because I guess she was looking at her experience with other people that perhaps had struggled with drug addiction or alcoholism and knew that they needed support groups. And she said, I want you to find a support group and, and go to it. So I had a bit of a look online and I found something. And the next time I spoke to her, I said, she said, have you found one? And I said, yeah, but I really don't want to go. <laughs> I, I said, I just really, really... I can't do it. I, I cannot go. And she's like, well, you're going to go and you're going to tell me how it is. Yeah. And I mean, look, she didn't, I mean, she said that to me and at the end of the day I could do whatever I wanted to do. She wasn't going to be able to force me to go. But I was at such a point of desperation that I was, um, I was ready to at least try. Um. So I went along and that's when things started to change for me. So the credit goes to you for being open-minded enough to have looked online, you know, not to have completely rejected her advice, which is what I would have done, which is what I actually did. So, you know, credit to you for actually doing that. I mean, I don't think I know anyone who would get up in the morning, jump out of bed and say, I know, I'll go and get, sugar out of my life and do it <laughs> exactly I think it usually takes an experience to or for me anyway definitely to bring you to your knees it takes that that degree of pain yeah. you know and, and getting to the point where it's intolerable and 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 thinking well I, I really don't think I can do this anymore yeah 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 can't carry on like this something's got to change and so you, it ends up being you who changes. Just taking a little break to say, yep, that's pretty much what it's all about. When you change, everything changes. And in the same way, when nothing changes, including yourself and your relationship with sugar, then nothing changes. And it sounds simple enough, but honestly, it's taken me right into my 50s to even understand the theory of this and to stop fighting against it and to realize that that's pretty much true for everything in our life. But sometimes we don't really want to see it. At least that's how it was for me with sugar. And only once I started to actually change my relationship with sugar did my relationship change. And because I've been there, I've been through all the steps. I've had several years now of sugar-free living to actually break down those steps and make them easy to follow for other people. And because I've been living the peace and the freedom of sugar-free living without feeling restricted and deprived, 
That's why I created the After Sugar Club, so that I can help others on that path to real freedom from sugar. Not just changing what you eat, but changing how you relate to sugar, how you see the meaning of sugar for you. And it goes way deeper than just calling it poison or saying it's bad for you. I actually don't think that's helpful at all. It just perpetuates another type of emotional connection with sugar. So the After Sugar Club is a safe space, a private community that I created so that we can go way deeper into what sugar really means to you and why it's so difficult to let go of it, even if you know that it's not doing you any good. It's a small, friendly community full of open-minded and committed people, and I love it. We have regular calls on Zoom that I call check-in calls, where we really get to the heart of your mindset and your emotional connection to sugar. It's a caring space for you to share with honesty and vulnerability with people who get you, who get where you're coming from and especially where you're going. If you want to find out more about the After Sugar Club, go to aftersugarclub.com. And for more tips and inspiration, you can check out the Life After Sugar Facebook page, the Life After Sugar YouTube channel, as well as my Instagram account at my life after sugar, which is where I post pictures of what I eat, what I do, you know, Instagram stuff to show you that contrary to popular belief, sugar-free living can actually be totally fun and joyful. In fact, way more than when you're suffering from cravings and the need to snack all the time and all the other health issues that sugar causes. And I also have lots of other free resources on my website, aftersugarclub.com. All right, let's get back to my chat with Alicia. Yeah, yeah. So I went to that meeting and I guess, yeah, I, I guess I'd describe it as some sort of grace or there was like a pause or I was able to stop that the train I was on stopped, you know, and and I just hearing other people share that they too experienced what I was experiencing, that feeling of not being alone. And I think the big thing was the recognition that I wasn't a bad person. Mm. That I because for so long I'd been trying to berate myself to eat normally, you know, and and, and it sounds really weird, but I would I, I couldn't tell you how many times I got a piece of paper or I sat on the computer and I typed up a resolution or wrote it out. And I put, would put the date and I'd say, I'm not, you know, I'd write this whole monologue and then I'd be like, and I'm not going to binge anymore from this moment on. And inevitably, I would always have to delete that file or rip up that piece of paper because I failed to do that. And I, I would always binge again. And I thought there was something wrong with me. And I think there was the recognition in that meeting that, there's something wrong and it's called addiction and it is a legitimate condition, an illness, whatever you want to call it, and it needs treatment, you know, yeah. and the, the treatment, yeah, and it depersonalised it. It took the shame. I didn't feel ashamed. I felt compassionate. I felt compassion for myself and 
And that then enabled me, I felt a sense that I had a choice and I felt, well, look, I can keep doing what I'm doing. I can keep binging and I'm not a bad person for doing that. Or I can try something different, even if it's for a day, you know, and, and I, was, I was at the point where I thought, I, I'm so tired. I, and I actually, it was a more compassionate act to decide, let's try something different. I don't want that other way of life anymore. So I did, and it, it was really, it wasn't with this grand view to change my life. It was literally, well, let's try it for a day. <laughs> very awesome. simple. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's very wise of you to see it like that because we often self-sabotage by seeing it forever right out the gate. Yeah, you can, I mean, that was the thought of um, doing that was just far too overwhelming. And even in my early recovery, I did have somebody say to me, you can never eat sugar again and you better get used to that idea. And that sent me into a tailspin that because I get, I think, I don't know, there might be you and some other people that relate to this, but being told you can't do something or that idea of deprivation or restriction actually then ramps up the craving. Oh, yeah. And yeah, so I think that put me in a tailspin and ramped up my anxiety levels. And then I spoke to some people that grounded me again and were like, no, you know what? Even if the day is too too big a period of time, chunk it down even smaller and do like the next hour or the next 10 minutes. Like, you know, if you're craving, get up and go for a walk to the letterbox or, you know, like break everything down into the smallest bits that you can so you find it manageable. Absolutely. Yeah. Great advice. Great advice. Yeah. And yes, exactly. It's like if someone tells me what to do, I'll just want to prove them wrong. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's terrible. Totally. When, you know, when I was told, OK, you, you know, you can reintroduce sugar now. I was like, no, don't you tell me what to do. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got to go with your personality and, and you know, you know what what you're like or it's important to know what you're like and to respect that I think so and when you say that there that you know you can reintroduce sugar now I think it's funny I um I'd probably been you know I'd let go of sugar about six months prior and I went to see my psychiatrist who was someone that I I very much trusted and had been seeing for a number of years and he he was more um, and I told him how much more stable my mood had been since I'd been off, off sugar because um, I, I had had some really major depressive episodes. And one thing I must say is since I, I let go of sugar, I mean, I still um, do manage depression and anxiety, but the degree, like the severity of my um, lows is just nowhere near what it used to be uh, I didn't realize it sounds silly but I really didn't realize the impact that sugar was having on my mood like the the yeah massive impact but anyway I said told him and he was really happy for me but then he said oh because he was of the school of thought where you can reintroduce things and he said oh and further down the track you know when you feel like it you can you know start eating sugar again and I was like 
what? Like that, that actually, for me, because I think I'm quite suggestible, um, that, that again, like my anxiety levels ramped up and I, and I started to experience doubt, like, well, could I? Because that feels really like, I, I don't think I could moderate it, but then why is he saying that? And then I think, you know, over months and even years, it, it, it just got to the point where I realised that the truth of my experience was all that really mattered because there's people out there that don't um, believe in, you know, the abstinence model or letting go of something altogether. And there's people that don't understand what, what your experience has been. And I, I did, and I think when I finally got to that point, which took a very long time, um, that's when I started to experience even more freedom in my relationship with food. Mm-hmm. And with sugar specifically. And sugar, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. That is amazing. And, you know, and you stuck to that sort of process right? Did you have ups and downs during that process? Oh, yeah. Uh It definitely was not a linear (laughs) recovery or progression. You know, it was was bumpy. And sometimes it was, you know, three steps forward, two steps back. But but I really tried to, um, you know, focus on progress, not perfection. You know, there's that that term and I I was never thankfully very hung up on being perfect. For me, like my my eating binging behavior was so extreme that I really just wanted relief from that. So if I found um, well initially this is a good example, I I had cut out all the obvious sources of sugar to me, like the confectionery aisle, the baked goods, all that sort of stuff. But I was still eating something that I, I sort of thought would be okay. and Because in my mind, I still needed a bit of a treat, you know, quote unquote, at night time. And so I was eating this, this thing at night. And a little bit like I described with the dessert earlier, um, you know, this, what started as a small bowl became two bowls and then became like a big, a, a very big amount. And one night I, I had this, that, that feeling of compulsiveness and being out of control when I was eating this thing. Um, I felt that and I felt like, oh, whoa, like I could lose what I've got here. I could, I could see that slippery slope going back to eating all those other confectionaries that I used to eat. And I thought, and I felt devastated because I really wanted to keep eating this food. <laughs> and, and then I thought, but at the same time, I really don't want to lose what I've got and I don't want to end up back there. So I thought, all right, well, let's just try again, like maybe for the next week, not eating it. And, le- and down the track, you might be able to re- reintroduce it. But after a couple of weeks, I was like, oh, my God, this is so much better. I'm not obsessing at nighttime about eating this thing. And um, so I guess, you know, I've had a lot lot of learning experiences like that where it's like, okay, well, and even just to the point where it might not be sugar, but I think for me, you know, food, it's it's a barometer. Like if I find that I've just like woofed my dinner down in one inhale, it's like, 
hang on, what's going on here? You know, and usually when I slow everything down, it's like, okay, well, I was really anxious today. Well, there was a lot of the kids, there was a heaps of noise at the dinner table and and I was, my anxiety levels were high and I was just like inhaling my food. So I think, and then to just reflect on it and I might just write a couple of things, sentences down in a book and be like, okay, to view it as a learning experience because it's really easy to get down on yourself and think like, you know, I, I've been in recovery for years, but I still you know, I still might eat really fast and I might overeat at times. But it's like, hey, look, compared to where I was, it's like chalk and cheese. My life is unrecognisable from what it was. But just to gain that awareness and think, okay, well, I'll try better next time when that happens. Yeah, without beating yourself up about it. Yeah, because I think that beating yourself up is, I know for myself that's... um, just going to send me it's more likely to send me back to those that berating myself is gonna you know I'm going to punish myself and then I'm going to sabotage myself right right it's kind of a cycle and that self-awareness that you've developed that mindfulness I mean I'm very impressed that you know where you started and where you are now as you say it's night and day yeah, and it's not perfect, and but that's okay. Like, we don't need to be perfect. We, you know, I think that, um, yeah, like all I ever wanted was to be free in my mind because I felt so enslaved by food and that compulsion and that obsession. Um, like it really, it, it really drives you crazy. Um, so I think um, to have that, you know, most of the time, and and I'll I'll be honest, like there's times, um, obviously, if I was to ingest sugar, that I I have a very physiological reaction to that, that creates craving. But even there's been times of emotional upheaval, like the death of my mum a few years ago, where I felt like um, in the wake of that, I'd go into shops and just like, I felt like sugar was in neon you know, like all the the confectionery wrappers were like flashing at me. And that was distressing in a way because I had, you know, a year of of recovery and and it was like, oh no, like this is, you know, it's in my face again. Um, But I just tried to, you know, do my best, keep things simple and just stay on the path. And, And I have found that in those times of emotional stress, if craving has come back, to just really try to hold on to the fact that the, the, that freedom will come back again, like the cravings will dissipate. Cravings never last forever. Mm-hmm. That, and and, that, and that, that sense of, of freedom where, where the food sort of fades into the background, it'll come again. Yeah. Yeah. So I've always tried to hold on to that in times where, where it has that noise has kicked back up. Yeah, which it will inevitably. I mean, real it will, and it carries on whether or not you consume sugar. It it's just that when you don't anymore, and you've come from a background like we have, um, real life carries on, but your ability to deal with it improves. I think so, and the more times I've been through those phases, it gives me more faith that when it happens again in future, and I like what you just said, like. We know it will because life happens and life can be very stressful at times. Um, 
that yeah to hold on to the other times that you know I've been through it and come out the other side yeah yeah great amazing great message there and great message not just for other people but for yourself you know to remember because it's really difficult to remember that things are going to be okay again when they're not totally and I know that when it happens to me again I'll feel very distressed and there'll be that idea like oh my god this just what if this the feeling doesn't end and and um that's where I think sometimes writing things down can be helpful you know just that or whatever you find it is for you you know whether it's um writing or or talking with someone that knows you really well like or doing all those things that can help bring you back into yourself because I think that's what happens it's that getting carried away and getting on those trains of thought that take you away. Yeah, totally. Yes, right. And do, did you find that having a support system or a source of support was key to your recovery? Oh, yeah, I, I couldn't have done it on my own because I think one of the things that I saw well, in my first meeting, there was someone that shared that had not eaten sugar for a number of years. And that just blew my mind. And I think I, I, I couldn't fathom it. And I think to see somebody and hear from them that that's the way they were living their life, I needed to know that that was possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, um, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, I couldn't have done it on my own. And I needed the, the education of that experience as well, like I said, to realise I was dealing with a condition and um, and gain ideas along the way. But I think it's also about, also, yes, I, I 100% needed the support. But then over the years, I've also um, worked out that what works for someone else doesn't necessarily work for me. And someone said to me once, you know, you've got to make, your recovery your own and I think um yeah I really relate to that and just putting all of the things in place that work for you or having a framework in your mind the way you think about things that works for you and sustains you because that's going to be different for you compared to what it is for this person over here yes and that takes time I think to work to work that out yeah I mean it does take a certain sort of guidance, you know, without that structure being so restrictive or, you know, that that you can't have any leeway. Because as you said, you know, people are all different and some someone may need a 12-step program, another person may need a sort of a, an addiction framework. And, you know, because we as individuals are not trained in all that sort of thing, at least as I certainly I'm not, we not only do we not recognize that what the behavior that we have is has actually got a name and is recognized, but even if we did, we wouldn't know what to do about it. Totally. Yeah, that, that's it. And I, I think, like you say, there's so many different paths. And for me, like, you know, the, the principles in 12 step, step of like that powerlessness and that surrender that just resonated with me so much and it really worked but then there might be other aspects like if there's sort of um, 
fear in the dogma like if I sort of feel that like sometimes people talk about that you know the disease of addictions doing push-ups and it's gonna come to get you like that might really motivate some people whereas I find that increases my anxiety levels you know like a hundredfold to the point where I feel like if I believe that that would probably send me into a relapse so for me it's less about being motivated by fear and it's like how can I be motivated by faith and what um how I want to live I mean I I think it's healthy and there will always be a degree for me of like I don't want to go back there that that will I will never be able to um um you know excise that from my mind what that was like and I don't want to because you know I need to be aware of it but I don't want to be living in in fear that I'm, you know, gonna go, I'm gonna slide back there. It has to be, um, I have to have faith and feel a sense of solidity or confidence that if I keep doing the things that I'm doing, that's gonna keep me on track. So that works for me. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, and basically that's the bottom line. Carry on doing what works for you. And, and yeah. The challenge is to work out what works for you, which is what you exactly. And and I think probably the, a common denominator in all of in your story and a lot of the stories that we feature on the, the podcast here is that um, going it alone has its uh, <laughs> going it alone is not easy, and getting a support system, whatever it looks like, is key to recovery and to finding freedom. I think so. I mean, we're such social beings, you know, and we thrive on connection. And I think um, we need community. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I couldn't imagine having done it on my own or even doing it on my own now, you know, like having um, people that know, understand um, and, and, and supporting each other. I think wherever you find that whether it's, and it might change over time, you know, you might start in in one group and end up on another. And, and the beautiful thing that is there's a lot of stuff online now. You can find a lot of support groups on, on Facebook or wherever else. And I, so I think that's exciting because I feel like even, you know, six years ago when I came to recovery, I, you know, there were no podcasts like yours, never. There was no, I actually at the time had read a lot of, recovery books about people that had struggled with drug and alcohol addiction because I couldn't find anything of someone that had struggled with sugar addiction in terms of a book in terms of listening to them on a podcast like so I think that you know that it's growing There, there is more awareness and yeah it's not recognized in the DSM it's not you know a legitimate condition in the eyes of the medical community but I I really tend to think that that's coming because it does take time for these things to be recognized it's take and addiction in general you know there's been a a stigma around that for decades which has slowly started to ease and and drug and alcohol addiction are recognized as legitimate illnesses so I do I don't think the question is is sugar addiction real I think it really is how could sugar addiction not be real (laughs) yeah absolutely yeah and whether or not it filters through into the DSM you know is 
yeah I, I agree with you I think it's a question of time and you know that is a question of red tape and oh I, I can imagine just how complicated it could be to get it actually into the, the official papers and whatnot but in the meantime what the reality is telling us is that people like us like you are actually living this reality of you know yeah of being call it what you will okay let's call it addicted being addicted to sugar we can talk about the words and semantics as as much as we want but the reality is that we are suffering people are suffering and getting off of sugar reduces that suffering big time a hundred percent you you just said it like you don't have to wait and I think for me you know I was I yeah that realization that it really doesn't matter who else validate. Well, I mean, it, in, to a degree, that's what we're talking about, that community and support. That's where you get the validation that right. what you're experiencing is real. But in terms of whether it's a recognised condition or whether certain health professionals that you see are going to give you the validation that you want, it doesn't matter. Because at the end of the day, if you re reflect on your own experience and you realise actually, I can't moderate this thing, you know, like that's all the, the evidence that you need. Yeah, absolutely. And then you go ahead and you do something about it. That's very brave of you to have done that. Well, yeah, I guess I think there's, I feel grateful, you know, that for whatever reason I, I did have that. For what I don't know, I, I I often think it's it's funny actually because many years ago in my early twenties I I was hospitalised for an episode of major depression and my um oh my I mean my I was off the charts with my binge eating at the time and I do I I I remember being sent to a twelve step group for for eat, overeating but I cannot remember anything about the meeting. I, obviously, I think due to the state of mind I was in, but I, I was not receptive at that point in my life. So, you know, I was exposed to it, but I just wasn't in, in a place where I could take it on board. And it wasn't until 12 years later that I ended up, <laughs> after another 12 years of, like, suffering, you know, I ended, a, I ended back in the same place, but I was more receptive. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I was yes. ready then. Yeah. Absolutely. And being ready is such a massive part of it all. Yes, totally. Mm. You know, all the, I tell you, all the credit goes to you. And, you know, you may think that it's just fluke that you happen to be ready at that time and not 12 years before. But I mean, that's how life presents you with these challenges. And sooner or later, you have you've had enough of the suffering and then you're ready to change I think so yeah I mean like in reality <laughs> I think I did need to be beaten down more like in the sense that I had quite a high tolerance for suffering and it really did need to get to the point where look this just can't go on yeah yeah well that I mean that's such an inspiring story because you've been on such a journey and I think people listening will be able to relate to that and think well if she can do it I can do it 
And I never thought I, 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 I could do it. I think anybody that has been to the depths of despair um, with addiction, like you can't, you can't see the light. You, and you think, I, I, you just don't think it's possible. And I think that's where it comes back to um, seeing this one person in my first meeting where I was like, oh, my gosh, like she's doing it. You know, and I think, you know, that's why I think, you, you know, your podcast is so important, Netta, because people are able to hear that it is possible, even, even though where you're at now, it really might feel totally impossible. But there is always hope, even if it even if it doesn't feel like it. And I know the feeling when you feel like you've lost hope. Yeah, yeah, that's such a powerful message coming from the heart. <laughs> thank you so much for talking to me, Alicia. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me, Neda. A wonderful, inspiring chat with Alicia there. And it goes to show that whatever your connection or relationship with sugar it's always possible to change it. Even though it doesn't feel possible, even though you can see that it's possible for other people like Alicia or like for me, and that it would be impossible for you, we've been there, we understand. And making the impossible possible is actually part of what the After Sugar Club is all about. Yes, it's about transforming your relationship with sugar so that you don't need it or miss it anymore, but it's especially about transforming your own relationship with yourself so that you don't need sugar to fill some kind of void anymore. You get guidance to get to that place of real freedom from sugar. That's what Alicia and I were talking about in our conversation. If you want to join us in the After Sugar Club, go to aftersugarclub.com. And if you're enjoying this podcast and you haven't left a rating or a review yet, then please could I ask you to do that and to share it with someone you think that would benefit from this podcast so that we can get the message of the joy and the freedom of sugar-free living to more people. Share this podcast, scroll down, rate it and leave a review and let me know how this podcast is helping you change your relationship with sugar and with yourself. And if you're new to the podcast, don't forget to subscribe so that it magically appears in your podcast player every Sunday. Thank you for listening. That's it for this week. Keep in touch and see you soon for another episode.